welcome everybody uh, for our talk today, uh, which is going to be uh, Jeremy Zalin. And he's going to be presenting his new book, American Lucifers, The Dark History of Artificial Light from 1750 to 1865. And so we're excited to uh, have Jeremy to present uh, his book first, and then we'll open it up for questions. So Jeremy, you can take it away. All right, yeah. First, I just want to say thank you uh, to Dolly Organson and the Greenhouse Initiative um, for inviting me here and you know making this possible and keeping us all kind of sane together during this um, terrible crisis. Um, and if it's okay with everyone, I, I would like to just give sort of a brief overview of the book and then um, read an excerpt um, and then open it up to um, questions. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Anyways, all right. So the story has usually gone like this. Um, first, there was fire. Then, well, nothing terribly interesting happened for a few hundred millennia. But then in the Age of Enlightenment, scientists and American whalers changed the world with whale oil. And just in the nick of time, kerosene saved the whales. Or more commonly, the story, story simply starts with Thomas Edison. American Lucifer's is my attempt to tell a different story of light. Um, one that neither begins nor ends with electricity. It is a labor and environmental history of the first century of the industrialization of light, and it is an unexpectedly dark history. From whale oil to kerosene, um, from the colonial period to the end of the US Civil War, modern industrial lights brought wonderful improvements and incredible wealth to some. But for most workers, free and unfree, human and non-human, these lights were catastrophes. American Lucifers tells their stories. The surprisingly violent struggle to produce, control, and consume the changing means of illumination over the 18th and 19th centuries transformed slavery, industrial capitalism, and urban families in profound, often hidden ways. Only by taking the lives of whalers and enslaved turpentine makers, match manufacturing children and coal miners, night working seamstresses and the street, lit, the street lamp lit poor, those American Lucifers, those bringers of American light, as seriously as those of inventors and businessmen can the full significance of the revolution of artificial light be understood. Unfortunately, pretty much none of these bringers of light left records in their own words, um, with the exception of whalemen. Um, researching their lives and work and politics meant reading against the grain of court records of the London Hanged, sugar planters guides that they wrote to each other, turpentine camp overseers letters to the owners of the enslaved woodsmen they were responsible for exploiting, reading newspaper articles about lamp explosions, life insurance policies on enslaved coal miners, government investigations into factory-related diseases, and the many entranced witnesses to the mass concentration, slaughter, and transformation of hogs in Cincinnati into pork, soap, and candles. Now the excerpt I'd like to read is from chapter five of my book. Um, the title of the chapter is Lucifer Matches and the Global Violence of Phosphorus. The knock on the door came at three, as it did every morning, as the watchman made his rounds. It was too early for even the light of dawn to begin its dim journey through smoke and soot and shadow into his Manchester tenement, but 15-year-old Richard Toye never woke in complete darkness. Like hundreds of other boys and girls in Manchester, England, and thousands more in cities across Europe and the United States, Toye glowed in the dark. He'd done so since he was nine years old. Many children began glowing as young as six. The wisps of softly luminous smoke rising from his skin and clothes were always there, if mostly invisible, save at night and in dark corners. As he'd tell the man from the government later that day, if you are in the dark and rub your breeches a bit, you can see them shine like a cat's eye. But even when people couldn't see the glow, they could smell it. 
Toya didn't much mind the smell anymore unless his clothes were wet. Then he could barely stand himself, as his damp, glowing clothes stink him out of the room pretty nearly. Across town, 11-year-old John Stafford lay in his bed, where he could see his shirt shining and smoking and smells it. Only on Monday, after laundry, did his shirt not reek and glow. Mother says I stink, stinks her out of the house, Stafford would confess to the man interviewing children at the factory. I tell her I can't help it. By quarter past three, Richard Toya had left for work. Joining him on his more than two-mile walk to the match manufactory outside the city, the largest in the world, were a dozen other boys his age. Most would be glowing. Some might be missing parts of their jaws. Three quarters of an hour later, this wave of glowing youth arrived at the Newton Heath factory complex of Dixon, Sun, and Evans. Just as Toya reached Newton Heath, 13-year-old Michael Johnstone's mother woke him, uh, knock her up, having earlier come to the door and woken her. Like most mornings, Johnstone felt sick. He'd been losing his appetite, and sometimes he vomited. He knew all this was tied to his match work, that the work might be killing him. Still, his mother was counting on his wages, and he had a job to get to, so he hardly left the tenement. The same scene repeated itself all across Manchester, and soon Johnstone joined a second, considerably larger wave of over 100 stinking, luminous girls and boys marching to Newton Heath. Match manufacturers in cities across Europe and North America purchased the labor of thousands of children and hundreds of adults, employing them to combine phosphorus, potash, sulfur, and American and Norwegian pine into billions of what were most commonly called lucifer matches. Importing sticks of purified phosphorus from Birmingham and Lyon, American match factory owners hired children to melt the sticks into a dipping paste and employed thousands of other girls and boys to make around 40 million dipped matches a day by the 1850s. As the American reformer Virginia Penny observed, the making and selling of matches have furnished employment for hundreds and thousands of boys and girls in all our large cities. Most of them would have glowed. The daily and nightly march of glowing children to and from Manchester may have been the most eerily spectacular, but they were hardly the only specters haunting 19th century cities with their toxic, disfiguring light. At night, Annie Brown of London, who had glowed since she was nine, lost her jaw at 13, and long ago become used to the stench, could see that her clothes were glowing on the chair where she had put them. Her hands and arms were glowing also. Amelia Block recounted how, though she and the other girls at the factory in Aberdeen frequently washed, the compo sticks to their hands and has a bad smell. Noticed it when she first came to work here. Mother said she could not touch the dishes after she or anyone from the place had touched them. In Belfast, nine-year-old Patrick Morgan matter-of-factly recounted how he went to fire in the street one day, attributing his spontaneous combustion to the sparks he saw about his clothes and legs at night, luminescent sparks that were not only strange, but terrifyingly dangerous. Richard Chidley fled the deadly stench of one London factory for a better ventilated one, testifying, it ain't such dirty work here. It was the carrying in to dry that he did not like. There was such a nasty smell in his mouth from the steam. Yes, the smell was in his mouth. He claimed carrying the frames of dip matches into the vapor-filled drying room did not make him ill, but it did those that had been at it long. They had the flute. That means their jaw swelled and they had it cut out. He might have had it out too, he noted, if he had not moved. In Lyon, observers described workers whose very breath not only stank, but glowed. When they were in the dark, the gases they expel from the stomach by belching become luminous, so that they seem to make flames by the mouth, and they make a real game of this remarkable phenomenon. While the stinking glow was isolating, identifying, and strange, it was more a marker of danger than the danger itself. 
The problem was the purified, highly reactive phosphorus. As the phosphorus slowly oxidized, it transformed some of its potential energy into eerie light and smell. But the two other pathways for that potential, en potential energy were what embedded phosphorus in a global ecology and politics of violence. Whether in factories or in the hands of match users, that phosphorus, like a coiled spring, would eventually release its energy. It could do so quickly in a sudden burst of flame, as when a match was struck, or the phosphorus could react more slowly with organic molecules, transforming into toxic organophosphates. How and where and to whom these transformations, fast or slow, would happen was never certain and could be within material limits, prolonged, paused, or displaced onto others. This was what made the nature of phosphorus political. The most permanently visible reminders of this inescapable ecology were the many match workers missing pieces of their jaws. Sometimes the gums were entirely gone from the upper jaw, leaving the bare bone grinning out a living, de a living death's head. This was the fate, the flute, that Richard Chidley had tried to flee. Maybe after a few months, but more often after many years of working in match factories absorbing phosphorus vapor, a relentless pain began in the jaw that not even laudanum could dull. The exact cause of the disease was a mystery at the time, and there is still no medical consensus. The phosphorus, phosphoric acid may have directly destroyed the jaw, or the vapor molecules may have transformed into toxic chemicals in the children's mouths, lodged themselves into their gums, and killed critical cells responsible for the normal turnover of bone. According to one survivor of the jaw disease, who found relief from sleepless agony only after surgeons removed his whole lower jaw, no one can describe it if they don't know it. It's like everlasting pain. Phosphorus could be both the stuff of life and the stuff of death. It could also be, in the interstices between, the stuff of light. One of the most revolutionary technologies of the century, phosphorus matches were also among the smallest, cheapest, and seemingly simplest things. But those matches, incredibly cheap, found their way into the hands of the highest and the lowest. Everyone now a strike or jostle away from producing instant, useful, and also potentially devastating flames. Beginning in the 1830s and 1840s, at factories in Lyon and Birmingham, French and English working men directed sulfuric acid and massive flows of heat to transform phosphate-rich bones and guanos into purely elemental phosphorus, all of which was for use in matches. European manufacturers reached first uh, for locally available bones. When they scoured the world searching for, uh, then they scoured this world searching for more, settling especially on the millions of pounds of bones thrown out annually as waste when the coastal slaughterhouses, or saladeros of Buenos Aires and Uruguay, where free enslaved and freedmen transformed the massive cattle, cattle herds of the Pampas into hides, meat, and tallow. They may not have lived and labored in the United States, but they were all bringers of American light. Um, and as a Connecticut match manufacturer well knew, the phosphorus that made its way into Lucifer matches and fertilizers came from more than the bones of animals. The battlefields of Europe have even, in some instances, been dug up scientifically. American reported, and their long pent treasures sent to the bone mills to be converted into superphosphate. Skipping around here a little bit. Uh, none other than Karl Marx found himself drawn into the politics of Lucifer's, an occasion that would prove crucial to his theory of living labor. As he noted in Capital in his chapter on the working day, the manufacturer, the manufacturer of matches on, accounts of, on account of its unhealthiness and unpleasantness has such a bad reputation that only the most miserable part of the working class half-starved widows and so forth, deliver up their children to it. And not only were these sacrifice workers overwhelmingly minors, but many were truly young. As Marx noted of the witnesses interviewed by John White, the commissioner of an 1863 report to Parliament on child labor, 
270 were under 18, 50, 50 were under 10, 10 were only eight, and five only six years old. With a working day ranging from 12 to 14 or 15 hours, night labor, irregular meal times, and meals mostly taken in the workrooms themselves, pestilent with phosphorus, Dante would have found the most, would have found the worst horrors in his inferno surpassed in this industry. Here, Marx worked out his theory of capital as the consumption of life through the consumption of time. Only pages before, penning his famous formulation that capital is dead labor, which, vampire-like, lives only by sucking living labor and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. The time during which the worker works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labor power he has bought from him. The luminous wisp, lisp, wisps of smoke that could be seen rising from the forms of thousands of children were the visible material remains of this necromantic violence. But to make the phosphoric fangs the vampire capitalists of Lucifer matches and their collaborators used to suck child life, phosphorus first had to be wrenched out of an organic ecology of DNA and ATP, of soil, sea, and bone, and pushed up the slippery faces of potential energy precipices into an inorganic industrial chemistry. The story of 19th century phosphorus was the story of coercing people to continually roll phosphorus up steep mountains of potential energy, while those on the downslope scrambled to direct it into the means of flame, profit, and power, or merely to survive it, before the phosphorus inevitably tumbled back down into organic chemical relations. It was a Sisyphean struggle, and it began with bones and shit. In the cattle-killing cattle fields of the Rio de la Plata, or, and on West Indian Guano Islands, Entrepreneurs and workers struggled with cattle and birds through racialized structures of power to make lives, make money, and make massive amounts of phosphates by unmaking animals and islands. The struggle then recrossed the Atlantic to the English and French chemical manufacturers uh, in Birmingham and Lyon, who, diverting some of these South American bones and Caribbean guano phosphates, negotiated with well-paid chemical workmen to transform the phosphates into pure inorganic phosphorus. From that point on, whether in the American match factories where children dip splints into that phosphorus, or in the hands of match-wielding seamstresses, tobacco smokers, bored children, or insurgent slaves, the struggle of phosphorus was the struggle of living in its inescapable ecology of oxid oxidization. There, people could, at best, try to chew choose among glowing, stinking, poisoning, or fire. But most of the time, those choices were made for them. The violent ecology of phosphorus provided real opportunities for even the most powerless but it was a slippery power that might turn it in its purported owner's hand and was ever escaping control. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, and, and so if people have a question, they can uh, write a comment into the chat and I'll call on you. Um, I'll just start with uh, my own question in, in listening to that, um, which is quite remarkable, really, if we, if we stop and think about how individuals' bodies um, are modified and yet they continue to do it. I mean, people continue to, to send the, their children to these factories, the children, you know, the, the next family in line does it. And I was wondering what kind of uh, stigmas were associated with this you know, glowing clothes, glowing uh, body. Um, you know, was it something that only, you know, the, the kids of this one very small neighborhood would do because they, they would have been ostracized um, outside of that area? Or how did it work in, in terms of the, the, political, the political ecology of the city? 
in which uh, they they lived? Thank you. That's a great question. Yeah, the as far as I can tell, it didn't seem like particularly tied to any one neighborhood beyond the fact that they would be poor, um, like not not enslaved families, but poor. Um, in in the United States, they were often Irish or German immigrants um, who were working in the factories, and in the UK, it was usually usually Irish families, but like. Um, not all the time, but yeah, these were sort of like the bottom of the working class families, but, you know, I think many of their neighbors would have worked in other kinds of industries. They weren't all working in um, matches, but the, the glowing and stinking, so there's almost like no reference to this at all in like 19th century literature. Um, so one of the sources that I had for these factories and looking at it was like Charles Dickens magazines. One of his magazines was publishing um, accounts of this, but it seemed just like how, how in the world didn't like Oliver Twist glow in the dark or like, you know, like why, why, why was this the first time I was hearing about this? And it seemed to be not even something that the, um, uh, the commissioner who was like investigating really was that interested in. It was something the children kept bringing up to him, at, at least in the beginning of his report. And then by the end, I think he, he starts asking these questions, but um, they don't like that they glow. They don't like that they stink. Um, the, the children don't. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, there must have been thousands of witnesses of, you know, at night or, you know, people seeing these things and I don't know, like either they thought they were crazy and didn't want to write about it or they started telling ghost stories. I don't know. But yeah, like the, the stigma is important. Um, but it's almost all of the children report, like the vast majority, at least that like their mothers sort of contract them out to these factories. Um, there are a few of them who seem to be able to, to go where they want and then bring home wages. But a lot, of, a lot of them are sort of contracted out by their mothers who are also poor and, you know, like struggling to make rent. But it's this kind of, they're caught, these children are caught in a way that's sort of, for me, complicated, I think, some of the stories about labor or like who, who the working class is. Um, you know, it's not, not to say that their mothers were capitalists, but like, you know, were, um, I guess collaborating in some sense, just to survive, like um, with with capitalists, and like so, these children are seeking um, allies in sort of unexpected places. And I think you know, like part of the reason they try to sort of um, conscript this commissioner into you know advocating for them, um, for you know telling particular stories about um, what they don't like about these factories, what it feels like to do this work, like where you know where they eat, where they do these things, like how. Um, you know, the, the commissioner is much more interested in like, can they read and write than exactly how they, you know, practice hygiene in, in, in the factories. But um, yeah, the political ecology of the city is um, a complicated thing. So yeah, they make the boxes elsewhere. Even younger children are, are part of that, um, assembling the match boxes. Um, yeah, there's one who's like, supposedly, he'd been working at it for a year um, when he, and he was not yet three years old. So I don't know, like, um, at least according to that family. So um, it's pretty, pretty horrifying stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, Conavery, you had a question. Hi, Conavery Valencius. Thanks for this talk. And Hello. I'm really interested to me in your um, uh, Dali's query in that um, as a 19th century historian, I'm um, constantly struck by all the things that I would notice if I were put in a time machine and dropped into the 19th century someplace that 19th century people took no notice of. Right. And I wonder whether some of you saw in the absence of discussion of these stinking glowing children was a certain assumption that, well, of course, poor kids stink, you know, right. and, and I wonder too, whether in, um, 
in dark nights, there are more sources of phosphorescence than, uh, or of glow than we usually attend to. I mean, that is manure can glow, right? And, and um, there are more kinds of mushrooms and molds that glow. I mean, that is, I wonder what people's light sense was in the 19th century uh, that might have either made sense or made them not uh, not attend to children's the, the state of poor young children's bodies. Um, and that kind of gets into the question I was going to ask, I would like to ask, which is um, in this project does some really interesting things connecting economic history, history of slavery, um, history of the body and of people's physical experience, and then history of environments and energy. And I don't know what, where you came from in those, but I'd be interested to hear kind of what did you, what pieces of those literature did you know pretty well when you started asking these questions? And where were the places that you had to learn a bunch in order to make this book happen? Um, yeah, thank you. That's a great, yeah, the, especially, I don't know exactly, you know, I, I, I can sort of guess at why it went unremarked. I think, I think you're correct that like, certainly the stinking part, I think would have not struck that many people as odd though. It might've been a, it, it was usually described as smelling something like garlic. So it's not it, like, you know, like, but they seem to describe this in a, in a bad way. I mean, I like the smell of garlic, but um, the, um, so that might not have struck that many people as unusual, or they might not have gotten close enough to the children to necessarily notice. But, um, and yeah, glowing, the the different accounts like sometimes it seems like it's pretty obvious like the the glow um and other times it seems like it's a little more subtle or you can only really see in the really dark spaces but i think most of the neighborhoods where these children would have been working also are like not you know the the, the streets are you know not they're curvy there's lots of corners there's lots of yeah like i don't know if there were that many um the kind of people who wrote newspapers about this sort of stuff um i don't know if they were regularly visiting these neighborhoods at night um and i don't know yeah it just it seems like just it just felt odd to me that i was learning about this for the first time but yeah you're right there's so much that they think is unremarkable um but the matches themselves glowed in the dark too so there were probably you know um you know other guesses as to what this might be or um you know like lots of people probably you know their pockets might be glowing in the dark or if they take a take it a match at night or something like you know that, that sort of phosphorescence would be all over the place yeah for the Question about the literature, yeah. So the project began more, I was, I was initially interested in electricity um, and um, I had been, I, I had felt that a lot of commodity histories and some environmental histories like didn't think about production and consumption together all the time um, particularly well and I was interested in energy. And I, I came at this probably more from an environmental history perspective. That's a literature I think I probably know the best um, I had sort of read a lot in history of slavery, but I wasn't actually in, in um, anticipating encountering much um, about enslavement. Um, all the stories I thought I knew about lighting were like, maybe there would be stuff about coal gas and coal mines, but that would be in largely free states or in, um, in, in other places where there wasn't a lot of slavery, I thought. Um, one of the sort of biggest early surprises for me researching was that there was a, an illuminant called camphene, um, which was the most like widely used illuminant from, um, at least according to several sources, um, by, from around, you know, in the antebellum period, like um, whale oil had become too expensive as it was sort of um, being driven, the prices are being driven up because it was, you know, it was a lubricant and it was an illuminant and like all the spin, you know, cotton spindles and like all these, um, 
and in you know other kinds of industrial machinery were um, driving up the price of whale oil. Um, but this was made from turpentine, and almost all of the turpentine was coming from North Carolina, um, and it was almost you know entirely produced by teams of um, enslaved men working in camps in like the Piney Woods. So I had to learn all about that. Um, you know, this is this was a, and this is like part of um, in the historiography of slavery. There's almost nothing written about this because you know it's not tobacco or cotton or rice um, or sugar, um, but it was like a really important industry. It was the third most valuable export from the South um, by you know by money. Anyway, it's far below cotton, but like um, but North Carolina at least thought it was going to help stop the population drain. Um, to the to the cotton kingdoms and um, so yeah, it, this became a story about labor and, and slavery and capitalism um, very quickly. Um, yeah, the I, I'm hoping my book sort of engages with all these different fields. Um, but yeah, th thank you for thank you for your question. And I'm just going to say also I have to go, but thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, we have a question from Tina. Hi there, Jeremy. Um, terrific reading. It was just so evocative. It makes me want to read the book. So I have a very basic question. So you've achieved one of your goals, I'm sure. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'd like to know what the other chapters are about. And then I want to build on Conaveri's question and say that when I heard you read, I heard uh, references to Linda Nash, Inescapable Ecologies, and also to, to Greg Cushman's stuff on guano. And I'm wanting to know if, if that's an intervention that you see yourself making as bringing the literature on the body, which Linda Nash uses so well, together with a global commodity history, which you say that you were initially interested in. And that is to say that, can you talk about that part of your book that deals with how light transforms ecologies afar, a la, a la Cushman, but mediated by Nash. Right, yeah, no, I think the um, Nash for me um, was particularly helpful for thinking about, I guess what, at least I, I don't think David Harvey invented this term, but, you know, about talking about internal relations um, of capital. You know, not just sort of the big picture, but like, you know, how bodies and work processes and all these things are sort of entangled to very intimate levels. Um, to kind of be like, you know, just actually commit to materialism here as a, you know, frame of analysis means you have to like, you know, follow, follow the material the whole way, even when it sort of crosses these boundaries um, of nation state or body or different things like yeah, the guano stuff. Yeah, there aren't that many books about guano. Cushman's is one of them. Um, and like most of what I've read has been about, had been about the um, Pacific guano islands where, cause I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, those are more important. Um, the guano islands um, that were used, that ended up in like matches, like the guano there, were usually the, they were poorer in um, nitrates, like, so they weren't quite as valuable as uh, fertilizer, but you know the match manufacturers, the phosphorus manufacturers, you know, just wanted the phosphate. They didn't want the nitrate, um, so they were buying it up there. And those were mostly seemed to be at least um, in the um, West Indies, these islands that like you know there's nothing on them except the workers and the birds, um, and they're pretty like terrible landscapes. But the um, the question 
about like how, how does this sort of integrate into commodity history, I, I think it's just to try to make it more a uh, history of work the whole way through. Um, I think often we sort of, when, commodity histories often move from like, um, you know, working class landscapes in the, in, the, in the chapters on production to like upper classes or middle classes to the, the chapters on consumption. My book, um, pretty much in every chapter, is trying to look at how um, the production and consumption of light is all part of like work processes. So I focus, I focus more in the book on working class people's um, use of light than, you know, who use most of the light, um, at least the ones that I'm talking about, um, than on like, you know, leisure and consumerism. Um, elsewhere, you know, because the, the seamstresses that are using the canteen um, to, in their tenements to sew shirts for, um, you know, for New York clothiers, um, you know, they're consumers of light and they're also producers of shirts. Um, and you know, to, to think through that kind of relationship. Yeah, so the, the book is organized, um, it's, it's got six chapters. The first chapter is, um, moves from about 1750 through the 1830s, um, 1840s, um, looking at whale oil as the sort of first really industrialized um, illuminant or, you know, uh, produced illuminant. Um, the American whale fishery uh, moves, you know, out of the Atlantic um, as they develop sort of deep sea um, processes for, um, for, um, sorry, my mother just texted me. Um, the, for, you know, uh, um, trying out whales on ships, you know, before it had just been like, you know, it's, it's kind of a scary idea to light a big fire on a whale ship. Um, and before they would catch the whale and bring it to shore and they could only go so far. Um, but, you know, once they start putting the triworks on the ships themselves, they can kind of go wherever they want. Um, and they start following these sperm whales all over the world um, into the Pacific um, and tying together how that light um, was used. Like the big demand for it um, was in um, street lighting, um, put, like, you know, all night kind of street lighting that was happening and um, starting in London and other cities in Europe. Um, as they're trying to sort of police and sort of control and illuminate um, night spaces. Um, and another big sort of sector for that is, um, at least coming from the New England fishery, is um, they're selling a lot of uh, whale oil and candles to the Caribbean um, for the sort of 24-hour workspaces of the sugar mills. Um, and so tying together the sort of Atlantic economy of um, sort of the state and working class and um, the plantation complex. In, in the Caribbean um, with the, the US or the, the colonial and US um, system. And as I, was, as I was mentioning to Dolly earlier, the um, whale oil becomes sort of entangled in, in the industrial revolution writ large as a lubricant. Um, and that's really what sort of drives it out of the world of um, illumination um, before, well before kerosene, and that was filled um, by camphene, which is the, the second chapter looks at the relationship between um, the spaces of the piney woods and the camps um, where enslaved um, woodsmen are making the turpentine and the tenement um, spaces in which you know, a, a big portion of that cheap, dangerous light um, was being consumed in um, northern cities by uh, working class people. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't think I mentioned, but the, it was, camphene itself was usually a mixture of that turpentine with like one part turpentine to like four parts or three parts, like really distilled alcohol. Um, 
and it was really volatile and it exploded all the time. Like, and it was, you know, it was really cheap, but it was really dangerous. Um, and there was, you know, this whole, whole campaigns against it, you know, sort of wrapped up in temperance campaigns. Um, chapter three looks at um, coal gas. And this was another place where I didn't necessarily expect to encounter slavery. Um, but the, for the Eastern seaboard of the United States, at least like um, the only good bituminous coal, which is the only kind of coal you can use to make coal gas, um, was coming from Richmond or you know, Richmond, Virginia and the surrounding area for the mines there. And those were mined pretty much, you know, they, they were the oldest sort of coal mines in, in colonial America. Um, and they were the deepest, most dangerous, but they were also mined by sort of these combined workforces of enslaved and free laborers. Um, where the enslaved people did the most dangerous work. Um, they were often contracted out um, from surrounding planters or, um, or urban slaveholders in Richmond um, and secured with these like, these life insurance policies that would uh, allow the owners of the enslaved people to recoup any losses or you know, much of their losses, which put the enslaved people in even more horrific um, sort of working conditions um, as long as they um, you know, could prove that it wasn't on purpose to kill them or something. But the, yeah, it created a very sort of strange um, labor environments underground um, there. Um, and then in the gas works themselves in the South, usually the, um, a lot of the supervisors were like British engineers, superintendents were British engineers and they would often start the gas works trying to use free labor and then, um, switch to an enslaved workforce. Um, like in, in New Orleans is, is a good example of that. Um, so you have, you, you have this sort of growing industrial slavery happening here that is tied into other kinds of industrialization in, in, in other cities. Um, the coal itself that is like, in New Orleans, for instance, like most of that coal is actually coming from Western Pennsylvania because of the, the way the waterways work. So that's like free mined coal and slave worked gas works. And in the Eastern seaboard is often slave work coal and free, um, free worked gas works. Um, chapter uh, four um, looks at the sort of mass production of um, animal fat candles, stearine candles, um, looking specifically at Cincinnati, um, and that, you know, as, as a mass production of hog death, um, there's this, you know, huge byproduct industry and soap and candles there. Um, but the chapter really tries to think through how, how, like the relationship between the spaces in which um, hogs are being produced, like these sort of geographies of life and the geographies of death, and to think about the hogs themselves as workers, um, as the ones doing the work and as being, you know, they, they can do all kinds of different kinds of work, like make pork. Um, they can also improve land and they can get, you know, they can get fat, they can feed themselves, they can do all these different things. Um, they can walk to, um, they can walk to market um, if they, you know, they can be made to walk to market at least, um, walk to their deaths. Um, and, you know, different farmers are struggling over how to manipulate that labor and um, get the most value out of it in the end. Um, chapter five is, you know, what I was reading about um, just here and chapter six looks at the civil war. Um, and there's like these sort of dual oil, kerosene oil rushes that are happening in um, Western Pennsylvania, which is the more famous one. Um, and like a few months later, there was a one happening in Western Virginia, which is today West Virginia. This one's mostly forgotten, but it was like almost as big as the one in um, um, Western Pennsylvania, at least um, through the years of the Civil War. Um, but the Civil War sort of interferes with it and destroys that um, oil rush. 
in because um, of you know battles and um, you know the, the military situation, and then um, it is largely forgotten. But it was becoming the sort of slave works like it, it could have been a very different future in which you have like um, a real sort of paleo technic like um, revolution in slavery. You know, if Western Virginia had remained part of um, Virginia or it, it had joined the Confederacy or different, like the, the, there was a lot of contingency here. Um, so it's sort of a counterfactual chapter, but not really. I'm just sort of like exploring the thing that was beginning to happen or was like, you know, starting to happen that was um, um, rerouted or foreclosed. Um, and the final sort of epilogue jumps ahead a little bit to um, thinking through how Edison sort of creates his own myth and makes it makes it harder for us to see the history that I've just told you. Um, but yeah, the, the reason I sort of end with the Civil War um, is because the more I read about this, the more I realized that like a lot of this labor was becoming increasingly unfree and increasingly entangled in um, slavery one way or another. Um, and that the Civil War is actually like enormously important for um, rerouting the history of light in a, in a way that seems like it's contrary to the story we tell about progress um, or you know, increasing freedom um, about, about technology, but also you know, especially about the history of light. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank yeah. you. And we have a question from Siddharth. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Oli. Thanks to you and uh, Fernando for the initiative. And Jeremy, thanks for a really um, interesting talk. I'm fascinated by the premise of your book. I'm uh, somebody who's interested in the environment and humanities, but I work uh, as an environmental social scientist, primarily on issues of governance and energy transitions. And, uh, and my question is really about what the work you've done can tell us about energy flexibility today while you were talking, I felt like several things about the rhythms of artificial lighting, how that changed the way that light was used in society, but also what that meant in terms of the injustices on labor. Um, I felt like many of those things are insights that are extendable to, uh, to energy today. And, um, and at least in the social sciences, one of the most fascinating um, sort of advances in these past couple of years to me has been um, this idea of flexibility justice and whether as we, as we continue having transitions between different kinds of social materialities in the sector, um, we are seeing different implications for justice. Um, you know. Sorry, I think I, I got lost. Even though you've been looking at things back in the 18th, 19th century. Oh, sorry, I can go back a no. sentence. Um, okay. yeah. Yeah. Given that, even though you've been looking at things in the 18th, 19th century, you you live in the 21st and and so right. you can map several insights on I, I assume it must have come to you what are the kinds of things that we could learn from your analysis for a current focus on on an extended social material analysis of the uh, justice implications of the way that lighting conditions our lives and energy more broadly no i think that's uh it's definitely something i was always in the back of my mind or so we sometimes have to sort of resist to like, you know, insert into the historical analysis, you know, to not be accused of presentism and um, things like that. But the, um, the chapter that I thought about this most often was when I was writing about the coal gas systems um, in which, you know, it's, it's sort of the close, it's closer to our modern system of lighting in terms of a centralized utility. Um, one that created real sort of pronounced visual inequalities um, in cities, you know, those who had gaslight and those who didn't, um, and they're digging up the streets and investing all those like resources. Um, and I think it does, it does the best job of any of the technologies, except for maybe electricity, um, at masking 
masking production like it is automated and like you know the scientific american was one of the sort of advocates for coal gas everywhere they really didn't like campaign they were sort of campaigning against campaign um but they would often say and they would often sort of say like you know the whaler is you know it's such a dangerous job for the whaler um we should like you know save whalers by um, replacing things with coal gas and it was just like it's a sort of this disconnect like they understand like that whalers are the people that produce whale oil, but there's no real like, you know, so we should have coal miners, you know, in coal mines that explode. And like, um, these are, you know, it, comparably dangerous spaces, um, but they're not really thinking about production in the same way for coal. They're talking about price. They're talking about like, you know, we should get coal from this place and not that place. Um, and I think it's a more complete commodification in, in that sense. And it, it masks the, um, it masks injustice it, it becomes invisible but I was also thinking about like our own like as we transition into a greener hopefully you know into a greener sort of um, energy economy um, you know they're they're like I mean how flexible how decentralized are is it like um, if everyone has their own solar panel or like you know everyone has their own like wind turbine or something like I don't know like it, it could create a very different kind of um, energy uh, a political economy of energy than if we move to nuclear or if we move to, I don't know, like something that's really centralized and controlled um, by um, one group. But when I think about like, I mean, matches are, is one of these sort of fascinating things for me. Like they, they knew how to make this safe. Like the, the way matches are made today, um, they still use phosphorus, but they now, now they put it on the, the sandpaper strip, but it's like a, it's a red phosphorus. It's just, it's just phosphorus that they superheat to a particular, um, and it like phase changes so it's stable, it doesn't oxidize it, you know, room temperature. Um, it doesn't create poisons, it doesn't spontaneously combust. Um, it made matches like a tiny bit more expensive. Um, and they, they knew how to do it from like the 1840s. Um, and they don't do it like anywhere really, like um, until, you know, in like Sweden starts doing it like one point, but like the, um, basically they don't really start doing it until around World War I. Um, and really that's, I think, more productive than pushing children, like, out of the labor force and, like, so there's more adults who have unions and, like, are able to call in their governments more. Um, and that's really sort of what pushes this out. But this is, like, you know, like 70 years or so of um, knowing how to do this thing safely and not doing it um, because it was inconvenient, you know, because it was slightly, like, slightly more expensive. The workers themselves didn't love it either because if they relied on the same techniques, um, there's more a risk of like explosion um, in, in the factory, less risk of poisoning and less risk of these other kinds of horrible things, but they didn't, I don't know, like there were, there were trade-offs there. Um, so no one really wanted it at that time, but they could have, they could have figured out a way to do it safer as they did later. Um, you know, it makes me think about, you know, a lot of our technologies that we use, we don't, we don't want to think too hard about like where they come from. Um, ones that are, it is hard to know. I mean, there are enough articles about where how your iPhones are made that you can kind of get a sense of that. But most stuff, like, I don't know, you just look at it, you have no idea um, how it's made. Yeah, I, I do think about, um, I, I don't, I, I'm not as familiar with this um, idea of flexibility, but I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, it was so good to hear about American Lucifers, which for those who want to go out and buy the book, as one should, um, is available from University of North Carolina Press. Um, so it came out um, in October uh, last year. So we're very glad to have heard about this dark history of artificial light. 
um, which I think we can certainly all reflect on as we think about all the lighting sources that we still have in our houses, um, because you have not only your lamps, you have uh, your telephones have lights on them that you use, um, your candles, the matches that are in the drawer, gas lighter flickers that you use for your grill outside. We actually have a lot of light um, and you have probably not thought about where any of it came from uh, before now. So I just wanna thank Jeremy for um, going through this uh, with us and, and prompting us to think again about the entanglement of uh, environments, materials, and bodies uh, through their labor. So thanks everybody.